Good morning. Cleared the first hurdle. If you have your Bibles this morning, would you turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, the 22nd chapter, and we're going to be starting in the 15th verse. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and back to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. The word of the Lord. The, there are a number of levels working here. People have read this story straightforward, and you get this reading of, aha, here's Jesus escaping from a trap. That's one way to look at it. And people have read it and derive from it kind of a rule that there are some things that are proper to the government and some things that are proper to God. Both of those readings have, uh, have weight behind them in church history. And uh, it is always good to approach scripture with humility and admit that there are things we don't know and that others may have insights we don't have. However, I'm going to say those people are wrong. I'll step right out with my hubris, and you know, somebody will obviously someday somebody will listen to this and go, "Well, here's where this guy was wrong," because it's quite possible I am. This story doesn't occur in isolation. This is occurring at a very loaded moment in history. In the broader spectrum of things, this occurs in the time of Israel's existence when it is no longer an independent nation, but it is just the Jews living in the Holy Land. And depending where you are in the former nation of Israel, you're either going to be under the Roman governor or under a client king like Herod. So at one level, that's where they are in history. And in another, they're in a particular time of this history Right before this, just a a mere chapter ahead of this, we have this scene of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. This is the beginning of Passover week. And Jesus has come into the city of Jerusalem, and he has been hailed by by the pilgrims that are in Jerusalem. This would have been the time of year 
when Jews from all over the Holy Land as part of their devotion would come to Israel, I mean, would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So there would be more people in Jerusalem than any other time of year. This was always also the time of year when trouble always started because it's the Jewish festival and this is when things get restless for the Jews who are living under Roman occupation. So at the same time that Jesus is riding in on this donkey, you have the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, who's arriving with Roman cavalry and Roman infantry to make sure things stay quiet in the city during Passover. So you have these, these two contrasting things going on. You also have Herod, who even though his territory does not include Jerusalem because he is a, a king of some Jews, he is here at this time too. So there's this political intrigue going on. This is not a neutral time. This is not like a lot of Jesus' ministry where he's been out, out in the suburbs. This is now he's on the main stage. And people are paying attention. And the consequences of what goes on are much more serious now than they have been at, at other times in his ministry. So we have this opening where the Pharisees went out to lay a trap for Jesus. Now, there's going to be two different words for trap here. There's going to be one there. And the, the Greek word there is very unusual. The, the Greeks never use it. The only time it ever occurs in Greek before this is in the translation, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, where it refers to, it translates a Hebrew phrase about trapping birds. But the other word, the more usual word, where Jesus will talk, when he says, knowing their evil intentions, why are you trying to, trying to trap me? That word doesn't just mean trap. It means test. It means try. It has a sense of inquiry and finding out. So there's a couple things going on here. Well, there's more than a couple, but two things we can look at there. One, the intent, and we know it's the intent from the parallel accounts in the other Gospels. There is an intent to set Jesus up and get him in trouble. But there is also this notion that whatever is going on here is going to be a testing and a revealing. The intent from the people coming to him is to test and reveal Jesus. That's not actually what's going to happen here. First thing we should notice is that it's the Pharisees and the Herodians getting together. This shows you how threatened everybody is by Jesus because this is almost the same thing as if during the Second World War you had the French Resistance and the Gestapo getting together to go get somebody. It's two totally opposed. You have the collaborators with Rome and you have the Jewish religious purists, but they're getting together to get this guy because he's a threat to both of them. They might not agree on what he is, but they both know he's trouble for them. One of the reasons this is so loaded is that there is a history of resistance to Rome in Israel around this issue of paying the tax. Uh, about the year 6 AD, there was a man named Judas the Galilean. You'll actually, in the book of Acts, when... Uh, John and Peter are 
hauled before the Sanhedrin, one of the people that makes a defense for them, Gamaliel says, do you remember in the days of Quirinius, there was Judas the Galilean led a revolt and it came to nothing. And he said, if these men are of God, we can't stop them. And if they're just like that guy, they'll fail. There was a history of people getting mad at paying this Roman tax and revolting. This, like I say, Judas the Galilean led a revolt in AD 6. And it's his sons kind of carry that tradition on. And that tradition is going to go on and culminate in the Jewish revolt that's going to lead to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So this is one line of things that's going on. This is a political hot wire. You don't want to touch this. And anyone growing up at this time would have remembered that revolt because the Romans dealt with it in the spectacular Roman way they do, which is not only to end the revolt, but to make very clear to everybody the cost of being in that revolt. So at that time, there would have been crosses all over Judea with people on them who didn't pay their taxes, who revolted against paying their taxes. This was considered an oppressive burden because here here is this power that has invaded your land. They've taken everything over and now you have to pay them for the privilege of them occupying your land. That would be insulting. That would be fairly insulting. To be fair, historically, if you come at this from an, uh, a, a viewpoint outside the Bible, you actually got a lot of benefits from being in the Roman Empire. At no other time in history was it as safe, and it will not be as safe to travel in the world again till modern times. You had the Pax Romanum. Everybody was, nobody wanted to bring down the legions, so you could travel safely. Nobody wanted to cause trouble. There wasn't a lot of crime. You would have people speaking the same language from the tip of, tip of Spain all the way over into the deserts of Syria. So there were benefits. There were libraries. There were baths. There were benefits. But still, this is something imposed on people. And it's interesting that we're getting this account from Matthew, the disciple of Jesus, who was, in fact, a tax collector. But then he came to the Lord. (laughs) One of the things I find very interesting is this was considered a very oppressive and onerous tax. Here Jesus will ask to see the coin that you pay the tax tax with, and it's a denarius. Well, just a chapter ago, he used a denarius, or two chapters ago, he used a denarius in the parable of the workers in the vineyard, and you find out that the denarius was what you got for working all day. That was the wage you got for an average worker for working one day. They considered it an oppressive tax rate to have to pay the wage of one worker for one day. (laughs) How many of you in April would be like, oh, I got to give up one day's of earnings? Okay. Fill out the form. I don't know. To me, it it seems like, you know, (laughs) could be worse. But anyway, it's this it's associated with this stream of rebellion. So they are putting him on the spot. Are you going to say something about this? And, oh, as a matter of fact, at this time, ah, uh, here's the Roman governor with all his troops. So can we get you in trouble with the Roman governor? Or are you going to, are you going to stand up to him? Or are you going to play it safe and say, pay the tax? And then everybody will go, well, you can't really be a Jewish patriot. You can't be a prophet because... You're telling us to do that. And there's a number of reasons why that's bad. It's not, 
it's not necessarily a neutral thing to pay the tax. Jesus will bring this up when he says to them, show me the coin, show me the coin. And he says, whose image is that and whose inscription? And it's interesting because the word used for image, when he says whose image is that, he's using the Greek word they're using there is icon. Which in the Old Testament, when you get the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is how they translate the Hebrew word selim. And a selim is an idol. Image, he's like, who, whose idol is that? So by the very act of pulling out that coin, the Pharisees are putting themselves on a little bit of moral ground because now you're holding an idol, so suddenly you're not so morally pure either. And whose inscription? And at this time, the inscription, this would have been during the reign of the Roman Emperor Tiberius, and the inscription on a denarius would have said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Would have been claimed to being the son of a god. So it's idolatry and blasphemy. Jesus isn't calling it out that. He's just saying, whose inscription? Whose who's picture? Whose idol? Pharisees, by handling the coin, are already compromising themselves a little. They say, well, it's Caesar's. And he said, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. It's a clever line. People have said, ah, look at that. He found a way out of the trap. Jesus is not concerned with finding his way out of a trap. He's already told his disciples that the whole reason he came to Jerusalem is to die. He's not avoiding that trouble. But there's everything in how it happens. When Jesus is before Pilate, he'll tell him, you would have no authority over me unless it was given to you. He said, I could, I could call right now and have legions of angels come. He made it very clear he was dying on his own terms. He also came before Pilate in such a way that Pilate could say, I, I find no fault with this man. Not, well, he's another one of those tax rebels, so kill him. But no, this is an innocent man. So there's everything in how he comes before Pilate. And it can't be like that. Now, we need to understand something about the purpose of idols, what purpose idols and images fulfill in the ancient Near East. An image represents the scope of authority of someone. Used to be very common for kings to put giant statues of themselves at their borders so that when you came on the road approaching the territory of Babylon or Egypt, there would be this giant statue of the pharaoh or the king so you would know who was in charge and whose land it was. Famously, Ramses II had two giant statues of himself. They called them the Colossi of Memnon. And um, the famous poem about them because after his empire was long past, you still had these fallen statues standing in the desert. And the poet just remarked on, you know, 
coming to these statues and seeing their inscription of, you know, I'm, I'm Ramses the Mighty, uh, and then there's nothing there. But that's how kings, they would establish what's theirs, what's their territory. That's how gods would mark out what was theirs. That's why you have an idol in the temple. You come to the temple and you see this big Zeus statue, and you go, aha, this is a statue of Zeus. This must be the temple of Zeus. So idols, images, not just idols, but images, let you know whose scope of authority and whose territory is being talked about. So when you get Caesar's image on his coin, he's saying, that's my sphere. This is, this is what belongs to me. So at one level, you could read this as Jesus saying, well, that's Caesar's sphere. You give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and you give to God what's God. But there's more going on than just that. The language when he says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, it's also not a neutral payment statement, not like, oh, give give Caesar what belongs to him. It's you pay back Caesar in his coin. He's holding a denarius, or there's a denarius right there. So people could assume he's talking about paying the taxes. If you were in the crowd and you were a zealot and heard that, and you remembered how the Romans had treated your country, that same statement could also mean treat the Romans the way they treat people. So this is a loaded statement. What is intended here is to be a test of Jesus. Jesus is turning around. It's becoming a test on the people hearing it. How are you reading this? What are you hearing in this? But there's another level of this. If we go back to the beginning of creation, the beginning of the story, in Genesis chapter 1, there's a reason God doesn't want us making idols. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God says, Let us make mankind in our image and likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God has an image. The reason we're not supposed to make images of God is God's already made an image of himself. And it's us. And he put us in his temple, his creation to represent him and the scope of his authority. And the ironic thing about this, in this case, is when Jesus is saying, whose image is that on the coin? And the Pharisees are like, oh, Caesar. They're just seeing things from a worldly perspective. If they would have thought a second, they would say, well, that's a picture of Caesar. Caesar is a man, and all men are images of God. So they're not seeing what's going on. This is the reason God doesn't want us making images to represent him. He's already made an image to represent him. When Jesus comes to earth and becomes incarnate, we, we hear in Paul, Paul uh, 
2 Corinthians 4, 4 talks about Jesus being the exact image of God. We tend to think of that as meaning there's something special about Jesus different from us that he represents God, that he's the exact image of God. But it's actually because he is the perfect of what we were supposed to be that he is the exact image of God. Two weeks ago when we talked about the parable of the vineyard and the vine, talked about how when Israel had failed to be the vine, God himself in the person of Jesus became the vine. When we, when Adam's children failed to be that perfect image of God, Jesus himself came and became that perfect image of God. So what's going on here is not just Jesus escaping from a clever trap of the Pharisees, but it's Jesus testing everybody, asking them to look at the situation. We can read, and we tend to read, and it, it's very easy to do. It's probably one of the easiest lazy habits to fall into as a Christian. When we read the Gospels, we know who the good guys are. Jesus and his disciples, the poor people, and we know who the bad guys are. The Romans, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. That's not God's viewpoint. God's viewpoint is he has his son and he has the mission field. The Pharisees aren't the bad guys. They're in opposition to Jesus a lot, but Jesus is concerned about them just as much as he is the other Jews. That's why when he tells the story of the father and the two sons, we love to call that the parable of the prodigal son because we like to think about the son that screwed up and ran away and the father runs out to meet him on the road and says, my son is back. But when his stuck up self-righteous son comes back, he runs out to see him too. He doesn't leave him out in the dark. He pleads with him too. So this is a time of testing. This is, but it's Jesus turning it back on everybody so everybody there can look at this story and think about what's going on because his concern isn't just for his ministry his, and, and those we would consider his target audience. His concern is for everybody because he is the image of God. So what does that mean then Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what's God's. Everything is God's. We are the image of God. If we're going to do that, we give ourselves fully to God. That's why we talked in Romans. says, this is your reasonable sacrifice. You give your whole self to God. So this isn't so much saying, There is a realm that belongs to government and a realm that belongs to God. This is saying, see what's really going on here. And you give to God what's God's. Because after all, whose image is it?